Good morning, everyone. Am I coming through yet? Not yet. It'll happen soon. There we go. Good morning, everybody. Sorry, I just wanted to grab one of those songs that Matt did. I thought, wow, what would be part of the sermon that... um, That's a great illustration for part of the sermon. So... um, well, here we are. We're back um, at, the, at the church after our men's retreat, wrapping things up here. And our um, topic for the week was kill it, as Pastor Eddie said. And thanks so much to the worship team, to Don and Ryan and Matt for uh, leading us in worship all week. I thought they did a fantastic job. Thanks so much to uh, Dave Keller, who... Uh, handled all the administrative stuff and, and communications with higher ground and paying our bills and all those things. So thank you, Dave, for doing all of that. That's right. I told Mandy, yes. I hope she wrote the check. Anyway, uh, we have, so kids meeting in the youth room during Children's Church for the Christmas play, but just the ones who are interested in speaking role, correct? So if you guys haven't gone, you can... Go and do that now. If not, stick around and listen to the sermon. So, like I said, the, uh, the, the theme of the weekend was kill it. And the guys have already heard this, but the story behind this was, you know, last year and early this year, we were wrapping up a study of a book by J.I. Packer called 18 Words. And it was um, 18 words that have, you know, deep theological significance in the Scripture. And one of the weeks that Eddie was out of town... Um, I was teaching the class, and I happened to fall upon the week where we talked about the word mortification. Can everybody say that word with me? Mortification. Yeah. So um, it's not a word we're familiar with. Very, uh, we don't use it normally anymore. Um, it's an old English word. It's something that the Puritans talked a lot about. And uh, that, that chapter in the book uh, just really resonated with me. It's all about killing sin, putting sin to death in our lives. A topic that I've been um, very interested in for uh, a number of years, and um, I'd actually before you know this year came about, I had thought in years past, wouldn't it be it'd be fun to do a men's retreat on this on this topic? And um, so this came along, and I, I called Eddie just after I got done teaching it, or right as I was getting ready to teach it, and I was like, Eddie, you and me, we're gonna we're gonna do the men's retreat this year. We're gonna teach on this chapter because it, it was split up into four. Uh, four uh, subsections in the chapter that I thought just lent themselves really well to talks for the men's retreat. And then I added one um, on Friday evening. Um, I spoke to the men about our motivation for killing sin. What is it that ought to motivate us to kill sin in our lives? And I, I talked about the, uh, the guilt of sin. Do we consider truly the, the guilt of sin? And I talked about the dangers of sin. Do we consider really how dangerous it is to let sin abide in our hearts and to, and to dwell when we harbor that sin? And I talked about the, um, the evil of letting sin dwell in our lives. When we consider all that the Lord has done and that we would grieve the Spirit of God by letting sin dwell in our hearts, that's a significant evil. And that ought to motivate us to to kill sin in our lives. The next morning, Pastor Eddie shared with us about um, our enemy. What is the enemy that, that, that is the target of our attack as we seek to kill sin? And it's 
not an external enemy that we primarily are concerned with. We're not concerned with the devil or spiritual forces as much as we are sin that dwells in us. It's the old man that's our enemy. It's us that's our enemy. Sin that lives in us still, that we harbor in our hearts, is the enemy that we must kill. And uh, in the afternoon, I, I spoke again about our, our aim and our objective. What is our clear objective in killing sin? And we dug into Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 13, and we honed in on, on verse 13 in particular, which says, um, I think just very clearly, you know, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And we talked about the duty involved in that passage. And we talked about the power involved in that passage. And we talked about the promise involved in that passage. And, um, and then last night, Pastor Eddie uh, concluded our, our time together in the evening with a talk on our superiority in Christ. And it was very helpful because we don't often think in terms of what the Spirit within us has created. You know, He's made us new. When we receive Christ, He's made us brand new, a new creation. And it's a creation that is far superior to the old man, to the old nature. And because of that, the superiority, our victory is ensured. When we set our minds to the task and we set our hearts to the task of killing sin in our lives. And so these are the talks that we've had uh, this weekend. And I, I've been blessed in getting to study this and, and, uh, and teach it and blessed in hearing what Eddie has done. We didn't collaborate a lot other than to say, this is your topic, this is my topic. You know, other than that, we kind of just let, each, let, the, let the Spirit work through us, and, so to speak, as we uh, planned individually. And uh, today I want to come before you and, and share with you the final talk, which is about the resources that we have for killing sin. And um, let me pray for us before I begin to dig into that. Father in heaven... Um, we have so much to be thankful for. Father, we have, uh, we have a new life and a new heart because of what your Spirit has done. You've taken away the stony heart and given us a heart of flesh and blood and a new spirit, one that's alive, one that's eternal, one that will be victorious. And we thank you for that, Lord. Yet we also come troubled, that sometimes, Lord, we let the old man breathe again. We let him raise his head up again. We listen to his voice. We hear the tempting words. We hear the craft in his voice. And Father, we don't ignore it. We don't shout it down. We don't, by the power of your Spirit, put those deeds to death as we ought to. And so, Father, this morning we, we come to this final talk, and I pray for blessing on our time. Lord, that you would speak through um, this message and use it for your glory. And, Father, draw hearts closer to you, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, one of the, the, uh, the cool things about digging into that chapter in that J.I. Packer book was that he acquainted me with an old Puritan called John Owen. Has anybody ever read stuff from John Owen? 
Some of you guys have. John Owen's one of the great old Puritan thinkers and writers and preachers. And he wrote a little book, 66 pages long, on the mortification of sin. And that's the title, on the mortification of sin. It begins with the word on. So anyway, so it's a good book. It's a good little book. It's hard to read because he talks like people from the 1500s talked, you know, which is not the way we talk today. And so I found myself having to reread portions of it and put things together because I didn't quite understand the figures of speech that he would use because they're, you know, they're outdated. We don't use those figures of speech nowadays. But kind of working through that, I found myself very blessed with this man's insight. And so what you'll find in my talk is <clears throat> smattered uh, with a lot of scripture and also smattered with a lot of quotes from John Owen because I think some of the things he said is very worthwhile and very encouraging. So let's talk this morning. I, wanna, I want you to picture in your mind <clears throat> a fountain. A fountain that's not really visible. But we know it's there because there are streams that flow elsewhere that we can see. My dad grew up in a little community um, in very rural southern Kentucky called Sand Springs. And it was called that because there was cold springs of water that would pour out of certain hills in that area. And no one saw the source of that water, but they knew there was a source because they saw the stream. So what we're going to talk about today is that fountain and those streams. Not the ones in Sand Springs, but the ones that are in our heart and become visible in our lives in the, ways that, in the way that we live and behave and think. And so... In this analogy, the fountain is the spirit. The fountain is the the unseen cause behind the death of sin in our lives. But this unseen fountain produces streams that are visible. The effects are visible in our own lives. And when we think about our resources for killing sin, our greatest resource is the Holy Spirit himself. Our greatest resource for killing sin is the Holy Spirit. But if you're like me, that gives you a problem right away. Because it's not really right to call the Holy Spirit a resource. That's problematic. It's not like I can reach into my pocket and use Him like a debit card or like a credit card or something like that. Or I can access Him and use Him when I need Him. He's not at my disposal. He's God after all. I can't just use Him like a resource. I think this is one of the the, the faulty things that occur um, in some churches that that overemphasize the work of the Spirit. And they talk about tapping into the Spirit in a sense that it almost seems like the Spirit's at our beck and call. And that's wrong-headed. That's not the way the Scriptures portray the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is God in the Trinity. So I don't like to call Him a resource, yet He is the source of all of our resources for killing sin. It would be truer to say that He uses us. The resources of the Holy Spirit come to us as we relate to the Spirit. Does that make sense? The Bible talks about walking in the Spirit or keeping in step with the Spirit. It doesn't talk about using the Spirit. 
We relate to the Spirit. And this is what God calls us to when we come to Christ. He gives us the Spirit for our relationship with Him. It's better to consider the Spirit of Christ as the fountain of all of the other resources. And His is the work in us that kills sin. Let's talk a little bit about, though, how does the Spirit go about doing this work in us? How does He go about doing the work of killing sin in us? And there are three things I want to point out real quickly. They're not going to take very long, but these are some of the things that, some of the insights that John Owen brought to the table that I thought were very helpful. The first way in which the Spirit goes about doing this work in us is He causes our hearts to abound in grace and the fruits that are contrary to the flesh. Let me say that again. He causes our hearts to abound in grace and the fruits that are contrary to the flesh. Galatians 5, 16-25 informs us of the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. They're presented in the passage as contrary to one another. The deeds of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit cannot exist in the same place and at the same time within the same person. It's not like that coexist bumper sticker that we see on a lot of people's cars. The Holy Spirit will not coexist with sin. And sin cannot coexist with Him. When the Spirit takes up residence in the heart, He displaces the desires and the deeds of the flesh. And He replaces them with His fruit. He grows those fruit in us. In a gradual way, sometimes. The more the heart is transformed with what the Spirit creates in us, the less there is room for the fleshly lusts of our former selves. So that's the first way in which the Spirit works. The second way is by attacking the root of the sin. Not just the visible surface. It attacks the root of the sin, not just the visible surface. In Isaiah chapter 4, verse 4, God tells Israel, When the Lord God has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the bloodshed of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of judgment and the spirit of burning. He describes it as a spirit of judgment and a spirit of burning. And the work of that spirit of judgment and burning is to wash away or to purge, which means to completely eliminate. This is the work of the Holy Spirit within us. And as John the Baptist said of Jesus, I baptize you with water, but Jesus, the one who's coming, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He said that in Luke chapter 3, verses 15 to 18. A fire, a purifying, refining fire that will burn away the sin of the human heart. And so the Spirit does a thorough purging, a refining, and a washing work within us. Going as deep as the heart of man, convincing him toward a new set of desires. And setting him on a course toward killing sin. Because its pleasure has diminished in the person's life. And it's weakened due to the Spirit's work within them. Thus the root of sin is attacked. The root of sin is attacked. Like James says in chapter 1 verse 14, that our own lusts are the root of sin. Every man is 
carried away or is enticed by his own evil desires, it says in that. And he goes to the root of that and he works within us all the way down to our desires. Our culture doesn't like this. Our culture likes to think that, think of things like what we've come to call orientation can't be changed. God says otherwise. He reorients every sinner toward holiness. Everyone's sin nature, and it doesn't matter what category of sin you may particularly struggle with, God, through His Spirit, reorients your whole life toward holiness. This is the work of the Spirit, and no one gets an exemption from that. So the third thing the Spirit does when He works in us is that He brings us the cro- he brings the cross of Christ into our hearts by faith. And He gives us communion with Christ in His death. So He brings the cross of Christ into our hearts by faith. And He gives us communion with Christ in His death. I don't know about you, but I don't think I would have ever put my faith in Christ if someone had not explained the cross to me very seriously. It was the cross that broke my heart. It was verse 3 in the song, Come, Behold the Wondrous Mystery, that broke my heart. Where he says, Come, behold the wondrous mystery, Christ the Lord upon a tree. In the stead of ruined sinners hangs the Lamb in victory. See the price of our redemption. See the Father's plan unfold. Bringing many sons to glory, grace unmeasured, love untold. This is the work that God does for everyone who comes to Christ. It's the cross of Christ that that breaks the heart of a sinner. It's the heart of Christ on the cross that draws the heart of man. Have you seen Christ on the cross in your mind and in your heart? Have you heard His words of love spoken there to you? Because it was for you that He died. And as the Spirit brings this ever more into our minds to remember, He kills sin. Galatians 5.24 says, Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Because as the Spirit impresses upon our hearts the gravity of what our sinful lusts and deeds have resulted in, namely the suffering of Jesus, for us, the appeal of those old desires fade and they become crucified and replaced with a desire to walk in holiness before the Lord. It displaces lust with fruit. It attacks the root desire. This is what the cross does. This is what the Spirit of God does. 
So their question is still there. I want to ponder a question that comes up and I think about this. How exactly does this work? How is it that, that we're commanded to engage in this work of killing sin if it's the Spirit's work to accomplish? So how is it that we cooperate with the Spirit? If it's His work, what do we do? I think the, the most important passage in Scripture for us to understand this interworking between us and the Spirit is in Philippians 2, verses 12 to 13. It's vital to our understanding. Let me read it to you real quick. It says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Now, as I read that, did you catch the ins and the outs? Did anybody catch that? The ins and the outs of that passage, that verse? Because they're very important. God works in, we work out. This, the, the, the inward work is the Spirit's work. He works in and through us, not against us and without us. The Spirit does not take over our bodies as if we become like some sort of avatar for the Holy Spirit to just use our bodies as He possesses it and controls it. That's not what He does. That's how demons seek to control people, actually. That's demonic possession. Um, And they, they steal your freedom. The human becomes enslaved to the wishes of a, of a demon and they can no longer control themselves. That's what the demons do. The Spirit doesn't work that way. The Spirit works in us in such a way that He works upon our spirits that are renewed in Christ to develop our understandings, to develop our wills, to develop our consciences, to develop our affections as the Puritans call it, our desires. Yet the Spirit leaves the obedience to us. You catch that? The outward obedience is ours to decide upon. He creates the desire and the will within. We are still responsible to do the work. He works in, we work out. Thus the Spirit, unlike a possessing demon who steals freedom, preserves the liberty of those who belong to Christ. I think that's amazing that He does that. Not that that fully explains it, but it helps me to clarify this mystery somewhat in my own mind. The Spirit works in us through a relationship with Him. So we talked about the fountain, the source of the streams. Now let's talk about some of the streams. These are the practical outflowings of the fountain's work. And there's three streams I want to talk about. And the first one is this, is growing in universal obedience. Universal obedience. This is a, a term that John Owen coined. Growing in universal obedience. And we could also think of these three streams as sort of the outward works of obedience that people can see. We exhibit them. But they are the proof of an inward work of the Spirit within us. So this first one, growing in universal obedience. What we come to realize is that it's not enough to aim at the death of only one or two particular sins that may plague us. We need to seek to kill sin itself. Owen says, without universal sincerity for the mortifying of every lust, no lust will be mortified. 
Oftentimes, I think we become troubled with a particular sin and a struggle that we have, a struggle that causes us discomfort, and it robs us of our our spiritual peace. It keeps us up at night. It bears heavy on our consciences. And so we seek to change and eliminate that sin from our our lives. Yet for some reason, we're met with failure in our attempts to overcome it. Has that ever been your experience? I know it's been mine. There are certain things that have plagued me. I'm like, I've got to overcome that, but it just keeps coming back with a vengeance. And I find my attempts frustrated. Owen would say this, and I think he's right. What we ought to do in those type of instances is check our heart. Check our heart and and to see what is our true motive in the desire for freedom from that sin. Is our heart in any way motivated in a self-centered sense? Am I doing this so that I can be at peace again? Am I doing this so that, that my reputation or my stature in the eyes of another might be improved? If your motive is to serve yourself in any way, even ways that we would normally call good, if it's to serve yourself in any way, you're likely to find your efforts to kill that sin frustrated. Isaiah 58 describes a people who are going through the motions of the spiritual discipline of fasting. And their behavior is actually described in glowing terms. They're seeking the Lord. They're seeking His Word um, in verse 2 of that chapter and in verse 3. But in verse 3, they they express a frustration that that God does not seem to, to, to have any regard for their fasting. Why? They say, He says, why have we fasted and you do not see? Why have we humbled ourselves and you do not notice? And God says that in the same verse, that they were disregarded because they were fasting to accomplish their own selfish desires. And you could argue that they were good desires. Right? I mean, it's a good desire to want to kill sin, but are you going far enough? Do you want to kill sin itself, or do you just want to kill this one little outcropping? Do you want to pluck the weed off by the head, or do you want to dig it out by the root? James 4.3 says it this way, You ask, and you do not receive. Because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. We're seek- are we seeking our own pleasure when we seek to kill sin? I would argue that's not good enough. <clears throat> we need to grow in universal obedience. The prayer of deliverance that God hears and answers come from a heart fully dissatisfied with every effect of sin upon it. The heart that no longer seeks its own will and pleasure, but seeks that which will bring glory to Jesus. And that's it. Is this the motive of your heart when you seek to kill sin? Does, does your heart break for the effects of sin upon you or for the effects of your sin upon Christ? Owen says that a sense of the love of Christ upon the cross lies at the bottom of all true spiritual mortification. Are you trying to kill your sin because you love yourself or because you love Christ and you seek His glory? I told you guys last night that I was going to save this last bit of my illustration because I kind of shared with the men some of my own struggle 
in, in this category of killing sin throughout the weekend. And I told them yesterday evening that there was at one point in my life, there was kind of an abrupt change. Something happened that caused me to gain a, a, the ability to have victory um, in ways that I had never had, ways that I had struggled for for years to overcome a particular besetting sin in my life. And I struggled and I fought for years and I was frustrated and I was on the verge of giving up. And then something happened one, one day and all of a sudden I felt a freedom that I could not explain and I realized I had resources and capabilities that I didn't have the day before. And it was abrupt. And here's what it was that caused that abrupt change. And it was a realization of this very point that I had all wrapped inside my own heart and in my own mind the motive for killing this sin. I was so concerned about my reputation for what the people that I respected in this life thought about me. Do they think I'm a good man? Do they think I'm a godly man? And when that's what was motivating me, I found my efforts frustrated all the time. And when I once realized that I don't need to care about that, what I, need to really fo- what I really need to focus on and what I ought to really be the concern in my heart is the glory of Jesus. His name. And when I confessed that, all of those years of, of, of having an impure motive, a self-centered motive, I found help that I never thought possible. God's work is universal obedience. 2 Corinthians 7, 1 says, Therefore, having the promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Cleanse ourselves from all defilement. Let me ask you this question. It's kind of a hypothetical. What if God allowed a certain sin to gain control over you to chasten you or to rebuke you for the greater problem of general lukewarmness in your life. Maybe you've just gotten lukewarm in your walk. And God allows something to creep in that you never expected, some sin even to creep in that you never expected, something to awaken you and shake you from your sad state and your sad spiritual condition so that you'll be shocked into changing course. Owen says this, The rage and predominance of a particular lust is commonly the fruit of a careless, negligent course in general. And so we must grow in universal holiness. Growing in universal obedience is a stream from the fountain of the Holy Spirit as He works in our hearts to kill sin. Universal obedience. The second stream... The second thing that we'll exhibit in your life as the Spirit's working in you, a resource that He gives us, it's watchfulness. Watchfulness. This is all over the Scriptures. 1 Corinthians 10.12 says, Let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. That take heed means watch out. Be careful. You could still fall. You could still fall. There was a number of years ago when Abraham was just a baby. Mandy and I took Caleb, Gideon, and Abraham to Niagara Falls with Mandy's mom just for a little day trip. And there were some benches on the, you know, coming from the parking lot, going, walking up to the, the falls. And 
Caleb, I hope he doesn't mind me sharing this. I'm sure he doesn't. I'm going to share it anyway. Sorry. Um, but he was just a little guy, and he was jumping from bench to bench, you know, doing these things that little boys do. And uh, he was doing well at it. And he looked at me, he's like, Dad, look how good I can jump on these. And I'm like, and I actually said, yeah, good job. But hey, pride comes before a fall. And he literally fell down and like scuffed his shin on the next jump. It was like one of those great moments, like, I shouldn't be happy about this, but I, I kind of am. And he learned his lesson very quickly. And wow, dad, how'd you know that? Anyway, so that's the Bible, son. The Bible's true. So <laughs> take heed. If you think you're standing, take heed. Be careful. You could still fall. And you know, oftentimes it's, it's after a time of victory and success that that subtle temptation toward pride slithers in. And we want so bad to succeed. And when we finally do, it's very easy for us to think more of ourselves than we ought to. It's at these times that we let our guards down. We stop being watchful. We cease to take heed of the dangers of sin that are still about us. 1 Peter 5.8 says this, and keep in mind, guys, all of these, these New Testament letters that we read, they're written to Christians. And they're written to Christians who've got some problems, right? That's, that's kind of a freeing thought to me. You know, back even when they saw all the amazing works that the Holy Spirit did through the apostles, the, the, the church has still struggled with things and they sinned. And that doesn't make it okay to continue to struggle and sin because the apostle wrote a letter to address that sin and things like that. But it still also feels like, okay, it's not out of the ordinary for us to struggle with sin. Anyway, that's just a little aside. Gone away from my notes. But 1 Peter 5.8 says this. Because all the letters say things like this. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour. There's still danger, guys. We still need to watch. Colossians 4.2 Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. 1 Thessalonians 5.6 So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Ephesians 6.18 To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplications for all the saints. And in Matthew 26.41 Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. So as watchful Christians, we seek to place barriers and distance between ourselves and sin. Knowing that the flesh is weak, never thinking, thinking that we stand on our own, always in humility admitting our weakness and expressing thanksgiving for God's strength in the victory. Notice what Jesus said in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. And I mentioned this the other day when he said, uh, when he talked about killing sin and removing sin, and he likened it to an amputation. Tear your eye out if it's causing you to sin. Cut your hand off if it's causing you to sin. But then what does he say? He says, once you've cut it off, throw it far from you. Create distance between yourself and sin. This is what watchfulness does it creates distance and barriers between yourselves and sin. It doesn't leave any occasion for sin to creep back up. It takes the necessary precautions. And thus a a watchful posture is a cautious one that seeks distance from sin and nearness to God. Nearness to God. And we often reverse this ideal. 
We get close to sin. We edge closer and closer to sin, distancing ourselves from the Lord. You know, a number of years ago, I went on a, 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 a mission trip with uh, not the current youth group. It was a number of years ago. We did a, a trip down actually to Cincinnati Bible College. It was a number of years ago. And I had a conversation with one of the guys who was struggling with a sin. And he kept asking me questions related to, well, what am I allowed to do? What am, how, how far can I go in this situation without sinning? You know, I don't want to sin, but how far can I go? And I just said to him, you know, the fact that you're asking this question means you're already in a, in a bad place. Because the question you should be asking is the very reverse. You should be asking, how close can I get to Jesus? Not how close can I get to this sin without actually sinning. We reverse it so oftentimes in our own behavior in life. We get close to sin and further from God. J.I. Packer had a great quote on this. And he says, To expect God to kill lusts in us while we read the books and keep the company and expose ourselves to the influences which we know foment those sins in us is presumption, not faith. And it's more likely to bring down a curse than a blessing. It's been said that though you can't stop birds from flying overhead, you can stop them from making a nest in your hair. And this is what we do with sin. Like we get so close, it's like, why am I all tangled up in this? Well, you were a foot and a half from it. God would have you move away from it and get closer to Him. So anyway, let me move on. The third stream. The third stream that comes from the fountain of the Holy Spirit. And this is, this is a, a good one, I think. It comes from Owen. Prayers that set faith at work on Christ. We begin to pray differently when we're in the business of killing sin. We set our faith at work on, on Christ. As the Spirit's healing fountain flows into streams, one stream will be prayers that claim the promises of Christ regarding the killing of sin. I want you to think about the rich abundance of the resources of Jesus Christ. I'm going to turn to a psalm here because we're going to read a psalm in just a moment. I want to be ready when I get there. Think of the abundant resources that Christ has for the killing of sin. He has enough to grant you success in all things. Look at what Paul said in Philippians 4.13. He says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. His resources are enough to help you kill sin. It's like the prodigal in that far country. Remember him? Remember how his mind was drawn back to those tables full of bread at his father's house? He stared longingly for just a little bit of food that the pigs were eating. And he called to mind the abundance of home. Call to mind the abundance of Christ and his resources and let them move you back home. Remember those words of the Apostle John. We said, we've received, we've all received of His fullness, grace upon grace. Your sin, though great, has not exhausted God's final supply of grace. God has grace upon grace. 
That's in John 1.16. I want you to think of that, that, that miracle that Jesus did in the feeding of the 5,000. And think of the abundance of God's supply of grace for you and for your sin. The disciples could never get to the bottom of those baskets. They kept reaching in and grabbing out fish and bread, fish and bread. That whole day they fed 5,000 people and they never saw the bottom of those 12 baskets. This is the abundance that God has in His resources for you to kill sin. Remember that, that it was the Father's good pleasure that all the fullness of God's abundance were to be found in Jesus Christ. In Colossians 1 verse 19. Think of His abundance. There's more than enough. Fix your prayers on those promises of Christ. Fix your prayers on hope in those resources. And though you might be weary of the fight and ready to abandon the struggle, remember this from Isaiah chapter 40. The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, He does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary. And to him who lacks might, He increases power. Remember this assurance as you wait in weakness and weariness. Claim this promise as doubt creeps in that that those who wait for the Lord will renew their strength. They'll gain new strength. They'll mount up with wings like eagles. They'll run. They'll not get tired. They'll walk. They'll not become weary. The Lord in Christ has more than enough for you. More than enough for your supply. Set your faith at work on Christ by praying and believing these assurances He promises you victory. Pastor Eddie did an awesome job of this last night. As these promises are believed and prayed, let your heart be moved to expect relief from Christ. You can expect it. It's going to happen. The check is in the mail, so to speak. Owen says that the mortification of sin for the expectant believer is like the vision of the prophet Habakkuk, which was for an appointed time. Maybe not today, but it was for an appointed time. He says this in Habakkuk 2.3, It hastens toward the goal. It's speeding toward the goal. And it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it. Wait for it. For it will certainly come. It will not delay. That is the same for us when we talk about killing sin. It will certainly come if by the Spirit you set your mind and your heart to the killing of sin. John 15, 2 should cause us to expect relief in the killing of sin within us. John 15 is that great passage. We just sang about it. Abide with me. Abide in me. John 15, it's that passage on the vital importance of abiding in Jesus Christ. That passage with the comparison spoken by Jesus where He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. It's in verse 5. But in verse 2, speaking of the intentions of the Father toward those branches that abide in the vine that is Christ, Jesus says this. He says that the Father prunes them. And that word prunes can also be translated as cleans them. He prunes or He cleans those branches that bear fruit so that they may bear more fruit. 
The intention of the Father is to cleanse us by cutting off that which remains of sin in us. Thus, we must expect relief from those burdens of sin that inhibit our fruitfulness. It's God's design. So after considering the abundant resources of Jesus and after we've begun to have an expectation for deliverance from our sin, next we need to fix our prayers on the mercy and the tenderness and the kindness of Jesus. Fix our prayers on the mercy and the tenderness and the kindness of Jesus. Isaiah 66, 13 says this, As one whom his mother comforts, so will I comfort you. What tenderness there is in Jesus' heart toward you. Hebrews 2, 17-18 says that Jesus, though He was unmade in His essence, had to be made like His brethren in all things, so that He might become a merciful and a faithful high priest. For since He Himself was tempted in that which He, was, he has suffered, He is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. What mercy is there in our high priest, Jesus? He is able and desirous to help because He understands our struggle. And He's moved to compassion for us. His mercy allows us to take these struggles and temptations to Him with confidence. With confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in times of need. That's in Hebrews 4.16. So fix your prayers on the mercy and the kindness of Jesus. I want to read Psalm 130 for us at this time and kind of end our time together with just a little meditation on this psalm. Because I think it's powerful imagery. David says, Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord, Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. And why is he praying? Why is he in the depths? It's because of this. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. David is concerned and in the depths because of his own sin. He knows that his iniquities are without number. And yet he appeals to the forgiveness and the tenderness and the mercy of the Lord. He says in verse 5, I wait for the Lord. My soul does wait, and in His Word do I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. Indeed, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is loving kindness And with him there is abundant redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. David describes his own hopeful waiting for redemption from his iniquities and sin. He says, his soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. And never has there been a watchman who waited for the morning and the morning did not eventually come. Never. Anyone who's gone out to await the sunrise has lived to see the sunrise. It's not that the sun ever fails to come up. 
David is saying, more sure than the rising sun is the forgiveness and the loving kindness and the abundant redemption of the Lord toward his people. He will redeem you. In other words, he will purchase you back from your slavery to sin. He's done that on the cross. And if you've put your faith in what he's done on the cross, you are free. You are free in spirit. Maybe not yet indeed, but you'll get there. You'll get far closer than you ever thought possible. He will redeem you. He purchased you back from slavery to sin with his own blood. All of your sinful iniquities, he bought you back from them. Those whom the Son has set free, he has freed indeed. John 8, 36. So set your faith to work on that promise. Let me end our time together this morning with a a quote from John Owen. He says this, Set faith at work on Christ for the killing of your sin. His blood is the great sovereign remedy for sin-sick souls. Live in this, and you will die a conqueror. Yea, you will, through the good providence of God, live to see your sin dead at your feet. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, uh, we give you thanks and praise for the amazing work that your spirit does in us. And it comes to us, Father, when we believe in Jesus and we receive the forgiveness that he bought for us on the cross. God, may the cross of Christ be ever before our eyes and may it transform our hearts. So, Lord, that all the sin and, and desires and wickedness that used to plague us, Lord Jesus, would flee and that they would be supplanted and replaced by the good fruit of your spirit. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Out of the depths, O Lord, I cry to you. When I am tempted to despair, though I might fail to trust your promises, you never fail to hear my prayer. And if you judge my sin, I'd never stand again But I see mercy in your hands So more than watchmen for the morning I will wait for you, my God When my fears come with no warning In your word I put my trust When the harvest time is over And I still see no fruit I will wait, I will wait for you. The secret mysteries belong to you. We 
only know what you reveal And all my questions that are unresolved Don't change the wisdom of your will In every trial and loss My hope is in the cross your compassions never fail To more than watchmen for the morning I will wait for you, my God When my fears come with no warning In your word I put my trust When the harvest time is over And I still see no fruit I will wait Yes, I will wait Watchmen for the morning, I will wait for you, my God. When my fears come with no warning, in your word I put my trust. When the harvest time is over and I still see no fruit, I will wait. I will wait. as we go, uh, please remember to keep uh, Marcy in your prayers. Also, uh, be in prayer for um, Pat Zabrowski. Rachel had to leave before the service to go and take her. She was having some, some pains in her chest area, and she went to the emergency room. So just be in prayer for her also. I think if you saw the email that Jim sent, he did say that there's visitors allowed. So if anybody's able to go visit Marcy, she would probably really appreciate that. So um, uh, let us close our time together. So as we, as we go and live the rest of our lives this week um, out in the, the work world and the school world, um, let's remember the promises of God to give us victory in overcoming sin and killing it in our lives and to know with full assurance that, that as we cooperate with the Spirit, we can and we will put to death the deeds of the body. Depart in that assurance and in the peace of Christ. Amen.